Welcome to Power Players by Orgis, critical thinking to deliver the promise of clean energy. This program brings you leading voices in solar and energy storage and sectors impacting renewables, exploring challenges and solutions for industry growth, the true cost of operating and maintaining power plants, and system asset management considerations. My name is Josh Corbett. I welcome you to this episode hosted by Michael Iman, Managing Director of Orgis Services. Today on Power Players, we're talking to David Kenny. David is the co-founder and chief operating officer at Omnidian, and Omnidian offers comprehensive performance assurance services designed to protect capital, invested in distributed energy assets across North America. Mr. Kenny has over 15 years of solar and clean tech experience. Prior to Omnidian, uh, David was a senior director at Sunrun, where he created and led the fleet operations department. This team was responsible for design and installation, quality performance monitoring and alerting, and field service activity. David, do you do you want to be called Dave, David, Mr. Kenny? How, how, how do you want how do you want me to call you today? Uh, there was a period in life where I was a David. I've uh, I've seasoned into a Dave. All right, Dave. Let's go with Mike. How's Great. that work? Mike, thanks for having me on the program. Welcome to Power Players. Look, Omnidian, I think, is, uh, I think most people realize, and if they don't, hopefully they will after this, that, you know, Omnidian's really into the technological application of how you service these sort of distributed fleets, you know, that are broken out across large geographic regions, right? It's a really hard problem set. And I think that we all struggle in this industry to understand how to apply technology to help scale, you know, businesses that are, you know, on the operations side of things. So talk to me a little bit about how, you know, you're, you're there at the beginning of Omnidian, right? I mean, you're part of the founding team. Like, what was the sort of the thought process? Like, how did you guys, when you launched Omnidian as a technology solution, like, what was your, what was your thought? What were your thoughts around that at the time? Like, how, how did you, how did you sort of look at that problem set and say, we can do this better with the technology and here's why? Well, I think a, a lot of that gets just just gets back to the uh, evolution of the industry, the growth of the industry. Um, we, as an industry, came from a, a place where developers, asset developers, were asked to play the role of then servicing the assets that they placed out into the field because there was a lack of alternatives. And the industry install base wasn't large enough to really support any other business model. Um, yeah, we've, we've since transitioned. We now have dedicated business models around field service partners, monitoring providers, and uh, Omnidium now trying to carve out a, a role here in the industry. And we think about all of that uh, along the buzzwords of vertical disintegration and thinking about a, a growing industry that can support uh, ancillary and dedicated business models. Um, so that was the original kind of context that we were coming into. And, you know, you guys have had some years to develop this. Um, where have you, I mean, that's where you started. Kind of where have you ended at? Where Where's it ended at today? Well, I, I appreciate the reference to end. Uh, it feel, it feels <laughs> well, the like, next question was now where are you headed? So I was, it, was taking a beginning, middle and end kind of approach to the question. Yeah, yeah. So don't get ahead of my question, you know, rhythm here. So where, where I, are you at I, today? I, I appreciate reframing <laughs> around middle and where we are today. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we got off the ground. We were a startup, right? So yeah. we had 
you know, we were three people sitting in an office uh, doing everything. And now here in the middle, let's call it that, uh, much larger team, uh, built out departments, a uh, lot of investment now into our technology platform. I know that's what we're gonna focus on here today. Uh, so for us, that looks like, uh, you know, a, a big team of software engineers, data scientists looking at the problem um, and thinking about where we're going. Well, I'll let you tee up the where we're going. Okay. So where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> growth, 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 right? Yeah. I mean, we. I, I think we're all excited to be part of the industry here because, uh, well, a lot of reasons, everything from uh, you know, trying trying to make a contribution here positively to climate change and and trying to save the world, but also to being a part of a growing industry. And I think we're going to touch on the uh, IRA here uh, later in the program. But just seeing where the industry going is going and the opportunity to uh, continue to contribute is just really exciting and engaging. Um, and if you step back and just look at look at the market through more of like a traditional business school lens, you've got this idea of early adopters. So who are the constituents who are eager to adopt new technology? Our industry has sold to that demographic for a long time now. Uh, and in some markets, uh, some of our larger, uh, denser markets, we're starting to see adoption more through that mass market, um, which really opens things up in uh, an exciting way because the numbers are bigger, but also in a more demanding way because there's less uh, less tolerance from that demographic for uh, nascent industry, growing industry. We're figuring it out. Uh, we have to shift to a pretty polished, pretty professional uh, solution delivery platforms that deliver great experiences. Um, so that's where we, we see things going here. Yeah, there's that there's that old Harvard Business School model of, you know, technology adoption that people refer to quite a bit. I you know, it's always shown as sort of like a bell, almost like a bell curve, you know, or like a, you know, I, I think it's I think it's a little choppier than that in reality. You know, there's the ideal and then there's sort of where we all live day to day because you you sort of have this idea of this is the best idea and this is how to do it. And then life happens and and the industry changes and the incentives change and the government changes direction and the you know all these other kinds of things so you know i can appreciate that you guys are driving towards an ideal and sort of trying to deal with these these things as you go so you know how do you so let's talk about the ideal for a moment um when we look at the different parts of traditional scope preventive maintenance corrective maintenance ancillary services even the asset management scope which i know is you guys handle a part of it, not all of. Like, how do you guys see the application, you know, for preventive maintenance? How do you see the technology application there? Like, what is that piece that that can really drive the business from the scheduled preventive maintenance side? Yeah, so there's a, a lot that goes into that, right? And I think from the, uh, from the consumer's perspective, whether that's a business, uh, professional asset owner, or individual retail consumer, uh, if you start thinking about it from their perspective, you've got uh, a, a pretty easy set of factors that you're trying to deliver on in the area of preventative maintenance. I know we'll shift gears and talk about corrective and monitoring uh, later in the program here, but on the preventative side, you're really thinking about things like uh, scheduling, 
resource allocation, who are you gonna be working with to actually uh, get that work done? Uh, continuity, there's a, a, a big theme around positioning a technician in the field with the appropriate context to understand what they're getting into and what they should be looking at. So if the asset has been in operation for a couple of years, you know, the context of what has happened historically in previous PM visits, uh, how that asset has been performing in the more immediate past um, and what they're getting into. Are there any known broken components? Um, so there's a lot of context setting that goes into that. And then uh, there's a lot of workflow that goes around the experience, the technician's experience of being in the field, being prompted to focus on certain areas, look at things, answer certain questions, and then capturing all of that output from the time on site in some sort of structured way, such that it can be communicated back to, in our case, Omnidium, the party initiating the work, but then ultimately the client so that they can see what's going on. Um, so there's a lot of uh, software that goes into uh, facilitating that coordination. And then now uh, with the advent of aerial imaging, you've got this overlay of uh, either fixed wing or, or drone uh, images coming through and, and filtering that into the result set. So uh, I think around all of that, if I had to boil it down into a word, it'd be workflow management. Um, and making sure all of that happens seamlessly with visibility for all uh, stakeholders, client included. So <clears throat> work, you, you sort of boiled down the preventive maintenance to workflow management, right? Sort of deliberate scheduling and management of, of how these things play out. What about corrective, right? Because that's, that's not, you know, that pops up. You have a problem, bang. Cor now, Corrective is is where where you where you can go a bit deeper. Uh, I mean, there's a lot that goes into preventative maintenance. Uh, that could be its own episode, right? With scope of work and factoring in different considerations. But it's a little deeper on the the uh, industry wonk side as opposed to the technology side. On the technology side, we really see more applications in corrective maintenance where first you have to understand that there's an issue. So there's issue detection as a whole category uh, of work and focus and application of technology. Um, and then there's issue resolution. And then there's the workflow that goes around all of that. Um, so I, I think we kind of just step through, I'm, I'm a very uh, linear <laughs> kind of OCD structured thinker. So I think we just kind of step through those in series. Um, and so circling back to issue detection, uh, we think of, one could think of an operating asset as a data generator. There's time series data that's uh, coming off of these assets. Um, and that time series data can be uh, retrieved, cleaned up, stored, and then analyzed. And when you're analyzing that time series data, you're basically looking for anomalies you're looking to compare that time series to some expectation, and then you're looking for uh, deltas, derivatives, and derivatives over time that would be a signal that the actual production value isn't where it's supposed to be. And then that sends up a, 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 an alert, a prompt for attention. And then there's some concept of- uh, what, what do you mean that like that sends it up? Like what sends it up? Like how? <laughs> who, what, where, you know, are there, are there like little 
gnomes inside of a machine somewhere that are working behind the scenes and like like i mean obviously that's not the case but like we clarify a little bit like because a lot of the people that listen to this you know they're not deep on the technology side so they're just going to hear that and it's going to sound like word salad we, we yeah. don't use that analogy but i think i'll i'll start using it now i like the, the gnomes. little gnomes i like the gnomes working away yeah um you know, that's not a bad analog, actually, in that uh, we think of the signals, the symptoms in the time series data that are indications of an anomaly as being distinct from one another. So we don't we don't use gnomes, we don't employ gnomes, but we have built out problem detectors that are specific to each type of issue. And then uh, we've invested a lot on the data science front to augment that with machine learning models. And then uh, you kind of have this abstract concept of like models of models, a model that sits on top of all of these dedicated detectors and makes sense of them and allows uh, for compounding issues where multiple detectors are, uh, are understanding their own respective issue in parallel. How do you, how do you overlap those? So there's a lot of, uh, engineering and data science that goes into that particular problem area. We can get back to that maybe a, a bit more here, but um, after you have an anomaly, something weird is happening. Now there's this idea of root cause, like why? Why is something weird happening? And uh, there you can dive into, again, the operational context and history of the asset to start to look at pattern recognition and uh, neighboring assets, and you kind of build a picture, build a narrative of what's happening at the site. And if you get that narrative right, it can inform what you're gonna do next, because ultimately the job is to solve that problem. Um, and in order to solve that problem effectively and efficiently, you've gotta have some idea of what's driving it, what's causing the problem, and that informs your next step. And the next step could come in the form of alert suppression there are some issues that aren't actionable uh if it uh snowed a foot yesterday and the system is underperforming you need to know that for a lot of a lot of good reasons but you're not going to call anyone and you're not going to roll a service tech out uh in that immediate moment so there are some some examples that are suppressed there are some examples that prompt outreach to a third party uh, an on-site contact, for example, to gather additional intelligence. And then there's a whole category of issues that prompt service work, where your next step is to engage with a service technician to go out on site. Um, so all of that cir circles back to, uh, to root cause diagnosis. So <clears throat> what I took out of all that was you've got layered technology and and logic in your sort of data science applications which allow you to sort of break out different issues and then assign the right next action whether that action is to ignore it to send a tech or something in between that that's right and i i if i if i could add a little bit more to it and just like think about the industry how the industry has evolved um there are two basic topologies to a strategy or an approach to monitoring and issue detection. One topology is to rely on uh, notifications that come off of individual components. So you've got a bunch of components on site. Uh, think of a big commercial site with a bunch of string inverters. Those string inverters are intelligent components and have the idea of operational health 
and they can send a signal back through the monitoring platform to say, I'm broken in some way. Um, so one topology is to gather all of those component notifications, uh, organize them, prioritize them, filter out the noise, because there's a lot of noise in that signal set, um, and react to it. The second topology, which is what I was describing earlier, is to build up an independent concept of how the asset should be behaving in the form of just kilowatt hours. Like given everything on site, the physical uh, components, the orientation, the design, the actual weather, how much energy should that system have produced? And then you can compare the actual production to that expectation and derive insight. Um, some folks wrestle with those two topologies and uh, invest in one or the other. Uh, our approach leverages both, although we see more value in the latter. So we see more value in that first order principle, uh, actual production, expected production, comparison, analysis. And then we think of those component notifications as informing the diagnosis. Um, but both have value and there are use cases and applications for each. So you view the the diff, the, the variance in production based on what you exper expect as a as the primary indicator, which aligns you well with your customers, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what they're looking for, right? It, it's it's true north. It's true and, north. Yeah, right? that, that is true north. And then and then you look at okay, now let's look at the system see what other indicators are coming off the system to help as part of understanding like the why behind it, right? That's is right. That, is that a true statement? That's right. Yeah, we think of our, uh, we think of our clients, we think of the, the market in general as being driven by asset owners, folks with capital who invest in the, in the asset class of distributed energy uh, systems. And those investments are big. Those systems cost a lot of money. So there's a lot of dollars going on up front to build these things. They generate real commodity value over time in the form of displaced kilowatt hours that you're no and, longer purchasing from the grid. And oftentimes um, wrecks in, in your space. And, and, and coming to you soon, PTC, performance tax credits, right? <laughs> which I never thought we'd be talking about on a solar podcast, but uh, he, here we are pulling in PTC for sure. Um, and you know, the reality is these assets break. They don't break a lot. The sun comes up, solar panels convert photons to electrons. The sun goes down and it, in general, out of like an aggregate portfolio view, everything works. But as you know, you build up exposure to enough assets on any given day, something is breaking. Um, yeah. and, and so you just got to be in a position to, to see that and react to it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I still, I think those of us in the operations side of the world still run into a view in the industry from owners. And, and I think it's a little bit of a self-reinforcing. I think they want to believe it. So they do the idea that corrective maintenance doesn't happen very often that these systems just work and they, and they don't break and it's just not true, right? We're constantly working on these systems. You see that all over the place. You see that at the kitchen table with homeowners and sales reps pitching no no moving parts. So what nothing can break, what could go wrong, all the way up to uh, the capital markets underwriting uh, uh, models to invest in really big systems and just under under uh, counting longer term O and M budgets. So it's a it, it's a persistent challenge uh, across the industry. Um, 
and it's it's part of part of what we're working on for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's it for a long time it was one of the selling points of solar, right? Compared to other forms of power, is that it's cheaper in OPEX because it doesn't require any maintenance. And I think people the, the really fuel, pushed that. As part of, yeah, they were trying to push it as part of like getting people to adopt solar when it was more expensive than other forms at the time. And that mentality has sort of persisted. But the truth is, is that it was never really true. Right. Well, it may indeed, and I do think uh, it does provide require less maintenance than other forms of power on average, but it still requires a lot of maintenance. And so, you know, my message to owners and anybody else listening here is if somebody tells you that this is going to isn't going to require any maintenance, that you go find someone that's going to tell you the truth. Yeah. And you listen to them. That that talking point in a lot of ways was a crutch that the yeah. industry used to drive initial adoption of the asset class in general. We were talking about the business school adoption curve. Uh, you know, we're talking about early adopters here and how our industry got those early adopters comfortable making the decision to invest in and own this asset class. Um, where we are now in kind of a, a mass market approach, I, I actually don't think it's a bad thing for our industry to acknowledge that systems require maintenance because our industry is now in a position to deliver a great experience around maintaining these assets. Yeah. If our industry is mature enough and sophisticated enough to find these problems, talk about them and solve them quickly, then all of a sudden we don't need that crutch anymore. And it almost becomes like something we can lean into as an industry to give even more confidence to uh, owning assets in the class. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but we find, you know, over the years, no matter what company I was with, I find that I'm constantly telling owners that sites are going to need more maintenance than they really want to believe. And no matter how many times I tell them, uh, we always end up contracting for less th than they are going to need. And then later when we've got this big corrective maintenance bill that's beyond what they thought they were going to need, then they're upset and they're like, you know, how come I'm paying all this? I wasn't expecting this. And I'm like, well, if, if you had listened to us when we told you, you would be expecting it. You're you're not because you chose to believe something that wasn't true because it, it matched a model. It matched a financial expectation that was advantageous for you. But the fact that it was advantageous did not make the, the the assumptions factual on which you based it right and yeah. i think that's that's something that the industry needs to get to but i, I do want to deal with one other thing that i heard that that for me personally is 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 a point of contention you said preventative are you a preventative or preventive guy i've always been preventive is the word i think preventative to me feels like a made-up word but i looked it up in the dictionary and they say both of them are okay and i disagree with that i'm curious what your view is there dave well, you'll, you'll have to remind me what <laughs> I don't like I orientate either, by the way, orientate bothers me as well, but you know, whatever. You'll have to remind me what I said. We'll have to play it back here. If, if you just ask me straight up, which, how to say it, I would say preventive and that the extra TA is a, uh, is an unnecessary syllable to drop in there. Now with that said, uh, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if I, if I use the extra syllable uh, and it just kind of rolls off. Well, and Webster's agrees with you. It's just something that I, I personally take umbrage with, but we'll we'll put a pin in that for now and move on. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, what about, you mentioned the owners, right? Owners have a need to manage these assets and we have a, a, a scope area called asset management we talk about in the industry. And I know that 
you guys like like or just your your operators we have an asset management group a lot of uh, operating groups do which have to do with things like paying leases and managing you know distributions and 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 insurance and things like that but there's also a data piece of that that i think you guys do get involved in can you talk a little bit about how you can use technology in that context how owners and and asset managers can use technology yeah and uh the owner the definition of owner is highly variable right and uh i know on the origin side you guys are working with uh in general larger assets here at omnidian uh we've got a big focus in residential and in cni and cni for us ranges from the 20 kw system on the local business all the way up to you know 5 10 even 15 megawatts um, and if you look at the, the types of owners there, okay, you've got a homeowner, you've got an individual, uh, an individual homeowner, uh, you've got businesses, and you've got these institutional investors who build out portfolios of assets. So the uh, interest in asset management is highly variable across those types, uh, owner types. On the homeowner front, the so, use... So so then why don't why don't I narrow it a little bit because you yeah. did bring up owner there's a lot of different ones and I, that was an unfairly broad question so when when I say owner I normally view that as the person or entity financially gaining from the production of the asset so that's typically equity owners in the system itself yeah well so I I which could I, be leaseholders in like aggregate residential systems it could be you know, uh, in the CNI world, it could be a business that has a behind the meter system that they own. It yeah. could be, uh, you know, the owner of a large CNI asset on a distribution center, and that may not be connected. It may, it may just be a lease between them and the actual distribution, the building itself. So yeah. it's, it's the entity that has that financial benefit from the production. No, I, I uh, appreciate and agree with the additional specificity. <laughs> the idea of those categories still relevant though, right? Yeah. You got the homeowner sure. who used a ca yeah. cash or loan to put a system on their roof. Um, and uh, okay, so what do they need? They're interested in uh, some confidence that the thing is working, the asset is working, and they don't they don't want to worry about it, right? So it's it's almost more like reporting and transparency. And so things like technology to support a, a portal for that stakeholder to interact with the production data and the service history or uh, proactive reporting that goes out once a quarter uh, in the mail or via an email to say, here's how your assets behaving. So there's some concept of leveraging contextual data, production data, kilowatt hours and service history to feed that back to the asset owner, the homeowner, such that they have uh, visibility and confidence that their system is working. The alternative to that is the horror story. I'm sure you hear them from your own, you know, friends, family, neighbors of the homeowner with the system on the roof that hasn't been on for like nine months. And the only reason they know is their utility bills have gone up over time. And after a few months, they start scratching their heads and calling around and figure out that the inverter's been off for nine months. So that that's like the contrast of what we're what we're doing there on the resi side. And then on the institutional owner and corporate side, you basically take all of that and just ratchet up the level of interest and attention and oversight. 
and, uh, and start to do things like more frequent reporting, visibility into open service tickets, uh, production history at more uh, 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 temporal granularity. So instead of monthly production reports, now you're all the way down to like hourly production reports. And ultimately, those developers and capital partners are then refactoring a lot of that and sharing it with their constituents. So understanding how your client is going to receive and use that reporting is valuable because now you can start to chip away at their cost structure and uh, get rid of some of that additional translation and, and produce something that can be passed all the way through. Um, but ultimately, it's around reassurance that the asset is generating the value that it's technically capable of generating. Got it. So are there technologies on the horizon out there uh, in the preventive corrective asset management space that that we don't see, but that you're you see coming that you think are really going to make a difference? Yeah, and uh, we talked a little bit about this in the in the pre-game pre workshopping, but you've got yeah. technology is a, a broad term, right? You've got everything from uh, software, data science, issue detection through uh, workflow. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that in a second, all the way down to in the field, right? Like uh, robotic approaches to cleaning or- uh, Sure, innovation. on the ancillary, on the ancillary side, sure, yeah. Exactly, yeah, there's a lot going on in the ancillary side, um, especially with this increasing uh, cost structure uh, that we're seeing driven by inflation. So there's a lot of lot of focus there too. Um, if I were to what, dive What's in, your favorite? What's your what's the one thing out in the future that you really geek out about? Well, there's not a lot of. I'm going to pick one. I'm a robot guy myself, but you know, I'm, I'm you can't take one. robots. You got to take something else. That, that yeah, yeah. I'll I'll pick one that it is <laughs> intentionally not very glamorous or sexy. Um, and uh, the reason for that is it's just squarely related to what, what I'm thinking about and some of the pressures that I, uh, we're under to, to grow our own business. And that's just in workflow management. Um, if you think about uh, hopping on your phone and searching for a roll of toilet paper with Amazon and buying it, there's a lot of tech that goes into that. You yeah. get the immediate text confirmation that your order was received you get the notification that the driver is a few blocks away. You get a text with a photo of the package on your doorstep. Um, there, and all of that is workflow, right? Supported by tech. Um, and the, uh, the frameworks and tools that are used in the broader universe to do that kind of stuff are now becoming available to industries like ours. Um, so we're now uh, tapping into Amazon's workflow platform to do things like begin to automate the workflow response to common types of issues. And where that type of effort is successful, you're pulling out cost structure from the industry on the O&M side, which then has immediate feedback mechanism back to development and origination and makes it easier to pull down cost structure, deploy more assets and really lean into that mass market uh, to drive more adoption. So um, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a cop out there, but there are more configurable tools and services that are becoming available um, that really allow our industry to make a, a pretty big dent in our cost structure. 
I think people when they and I'm I'm no exception when people think about things like workflow, they think in terms of sort of like if then kind of, you know, statements like if this happens, then you do that, which is sort of a linear structured workflow and it's sort of an older way to look at, you know, the back end software programming. I mean, if then statements were literally part of, <laughs> you know, programming. It seems to me, though, that that the emergence of AI is the ability to move away from if then kind of structures into a more, you know, where you have sort of a cloud of opportunities, a cloud of activities, and you can have, and data science and AI applications can allow you to navigate those in a more agile way, where sometimes you're, you're, you're going from one uh, data point to another without a direct connection with, because you're inferring, there's some inference that's occurring that's getting you to that point quicker. Um, that is a very bad definition of AI, by the way, but talk to me about how you see that piece. Yeah, it, that it's an important piece of the puzzle. I, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but uh, the opportunity to take advantage of AI and machine learning uh, that we see is upstream of the operational workflow and really focused on the anomaly detection and the root cause characterization. Um, and I think your description was a good one. Uh, the way I would play that back is machine learning and AI have the ability to do pattern recognition in an automated and sophisticated way that would be otherwise cost prohibitive to, uh, to hire people to do. Right. So you have uh, a, a variety of factors and inputs, whether on site uh, uh, behavior, service history. There's a lot of context that you can feed into these models to say, uh, hey, model, is something weird going on? And if so, what's causing it? Um, and if you can get those pieces right, then it allows you to tee off the most appropriate workflow in, in response to that. And that workflow might have some steps that are manual, some steps that are automated, and your if-then decision points might flirt back and forth between manual tasks and automated tasks. But if you have a framework around that and you're teeing up the framework to initiate the right workflow in the first place, then you're in a pretty good spot. Um, yeah, I, I think of it in terms of, of pattern recognition you know resulting in a sort of a digital intuition right i i years ago i i was i was uh when i was still in b school i was interviewing leaders and i had a, a great interview with then at the time vice admiral uh craven who i happen to know through some connections uh bill mccraven quite famous we can talk about that some other time but you know he made a comment to me at the time that i never thought about that really stuck with me where where i was asking about leadership and how he learns and he says you know you you see the same things happen at a human level humans are complex you know organizational organizations are complex but over time you start to recognize patterns right which allow you to sort of hey i've seen this pattern before let me let me i can make this intuitive leap to the end without having to go through the middle because this is something that I've seen over and over again and this is a common pattern. And then I, I I had another interview with another CEO at the time named Dave Dutch and he said a similar thing and that stuck with me. And it occurs to me that that, that really is how sort of AI machine learning works, right? It's about 
seeing these patterns over and over again in the in the the machine just like the human starts to say well again using the if then if this pattern always results generally in this solution set then i can jump right to that right well and and think about how many patterns there are in our industry right you've got sun sun up sun sundown day to day you've got yeah. seasonal variants <clears> in that you've got uh, soiling patterns that play out over time in hyper-local ways. You have uh, weather variants that play out in hyper-local ways. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar Microclimates, with yeah. Microclimates, go, go to the North Shore of Hawaii and like yeah. try to figure out what's going on with insulation there. Um, and, and, and we've got a big industry, right? We've got 3 million of these, these distributed energy assets out there right now. So if you can build up a portfolio of operational history and context, then you can really start to see those patterns and pull them out in pretty efficient ways. Um, and you know, our industry is again big enough now that uh, even even somebody like Omnidium, we've only been at it for uh, a couple of years here, but we've got you know hundreds of thousands of operational uh, years of data sitting in a database. You can really use that to train these models to find those patterns. Um, to, to, to teach them to recognize the patterns and intuit the direction and that it needs to go. I think that's really interesting. I have never made, this is the first time, Dave, I have to be honest, since talking to Dave Dutch and, and Bill McRaven, Admiral McRaven all those years ago, I, I've never connected this to how people are building out AI until this moment. I think it's a really interesting insight from this, this segment, at least for me personally. I appreciate you bringing that out. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how deep the insight is there, but you, you talk to folks in the data science community and you describe our industry and our data set, and there, there's just palpable interest, right? Yeah. Big, big time series database, lots of assets, recurring patterns. Um, it's the type of problems that data science is in a great position to dig into given the current state of that te technology. So AI and data science is and will move the needle. Yeah, and and uh, I guess a, a, a comment or uh, an idea or suggestion for for other folks who are kind of contributing here is you can you can accelerate that by thinking about your own operational workflows and the way you capture data in your own system, meaning an input to that uh, machine learning strategy can be your own operational history. So if you're, if you're coding service events in a prescriptive enough way and a consistent enough way, then all of a sudden your own operational history becomes an input into those models um, and helps you derive even more insight from, uh, from future recurrence of events that have happened in the past. Yeah. So I don't think that everybody who listens to this wants to listen to me geek out on this subject for the next three hours. So at this point, I'm going to make an abrupt shift to another subject because we talked about it earlier. We're getting close to the end of our time and we need to address it. We have the somewhat ignominiously, ignominiously named Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which nonetheless included quite a bit of change for our industry. So what do you see from, from Omnidian's viewpoint and from your point Dave, personally, what do you see as really being the big impacts? Well, uh, to say something stupid, I, I think the big impact That's my job, is, by the way. I say is our 
Our, yeah, our, industry, say sorry, our industry is teed up for growth, right? Yeah. Like th this is good news. Yeah. Um, and uh, we just see a lot of tailwinds uh, in the industry here going forward. So good news is the is the high level takeaway. My uh, disclaimer is that I'm not a policy guy and haven't had the opportunity to dig into the details. What I do understand is that it's highly complicated. It's increasing complexity, right? You've got the idea of uh, PTC. Okay, what, what's the cutoff for asset size and production yield such that that becomes advantageous? Okay, now, now we've got a, a whole group of people in our industry building out Excel models to determine when you opt into the PTC mechanism. Um, on the ITC side, you've got this new idea of a, of a base and then adders for different things. Uh, components manufactured in the US, if above threshold, you get a, a bonus. Certain markets um, where you have specific need, another 10%. It, exactly. So the sophistication behind this work is increasing, which uh, it is in a certain way unfortunate. Like one way to bring down the cost of capital is to simplify these structures and open them up to more and more capital sources. Um, we're making them more complicated and increasing the value of the benefit, which is going to pull in more interest. But uh, again, there's a cost there. Um, from a more practical perspective, just looking at it from Omnidian's perspective, one of the big uh, one of the big questions, of course, is prevailing wage. What is prevailing wage? What is the value of the benefit that you get for using prevailing wage? And how far into the operational life cycle of the asset does the prevailing wage requirement extend? And what specific types of actions is it applicable to? Um, and then from a more general industry perspective, if, uh, if current wages are different from prevailing wage, which I still don't quite understand, I understand conceptually, but I don't have like a mathematical model to really right. figure that out. But if that is true, and a portion of the industry is pulled up to prevailing wage in certain circumstances, what does that mean for the balance of the industry? I, th I think those wages get pulled up too. Yeah. Um, so so now, now you got to figure out how you're going to run your cost models against that set of ambiguity. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, prevailing wage is something that we've dealt with in California and some of the northeastern markets for a long time. And that was a uh, variation at a state level of Davis-Bacon, which is the federal act, right, which used to apply when you had federal dollars applied to projects. And then you had county by county, you had different wages for different job codes. So when the government gets involved, it gets suddenly gets very complicated. You have to figure out exactly which job, you know, code uh, applies to that work. And then you have to track it county by county. And every time somebody crosses a county line, their wage rate has to change. So, and then you have to have, there's companies that all they do is track compliance to that because then you have to comply with it on a federal level. So from a simple perspective, businesses have to look at their broad exposure and say, okay, what's the highest cost in whichever county we operate? And that's where we're gonna, we're gonna benchmark our pay so that we can show that we're always in compliance because we're always above all the other parts of our problem set. Otherwise we're gonna engender a really complicated compliance problem where we have to change people's things every time they cross a county. If you do that, then you tend to get better response and higher paying paying counties, <laughs> you know, and you and you and you get sort of a flight from the lower wage areas to the higher wage areas, which to your point 
ultimately results in resetting the wages across the entire industry at a higher level, regardless of whether or not your project is directly being impacted by Davis-Bacon or what, what's commonly called prevailing wage. Um, it's going to be interesting to see that play out. I, I will say my view is the same as yours. The entire industry is going to is, is going to see a wage increase on average because if you've got a facility and somebody brings in a new one near you or they're under construction a new one near you and they're paying higher wages that's where your talent's going to go unless you can you can match it and so um for my part i'll say i think the guys in the field deserve uh, more money i uh, you know i i agree with making sure people have a, a living wage and those should be really good quality jobs where people can build careers pay mortgages put their kids through college or trade school or whatever um but the industry is going to have to grapple with the fact that that means prices are are increasing um, and they're going to have to grapple with uh, things like inflation, which which banks want to ignore and and financiers want to ignore. Right. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a changing environment. It's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and as operators, we've all been especially you guys, you're you're in uh, you guys are in Seattle, uh, but you've got a lot of stuff in California. You've been dealing with prevailing wage for for quite a long time, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I think I'll I'll uh, I'll distill my comments down into two two reactions. Number one, uh, on the on tying this back to technology, there's uh, there's a big operational decision and workflow when it comes to pairing a known and actionable issue with a resource in the field. That, that's complicated. There's a lot of factors that go into yeah. it. Uh, this will be one of them. So there's an opportunity to leverage technology to facilitate the pairing of work to an appropriate vendor um, and then running the compliance and reporting on, on the back end of that. So so there's a, there's a lot of areas to leverage technology to work within this new environment. Um, and then on a more general note, and this is beyond the scope for our discussion here, but as the IRA drives a growing market and uh, our industry is putting 40 gigawatts in the ground coming up here in the future, uh, begs the question, who's doing all that work, right? There are more, we will have more need for installation support and maintenance support than the current industry is capable of providing. Um, so in addition to the angle on uh, wages, there's also just a, a, a recruiting and retention topic around uh, around the labor itself. I think that's right. I think uh, I think we're out of time as well. So <laughs> I, I want to close this with a final thought, which is, you know, uh, solar's hiring, folks. We need a lot of people. So if you're out there and you're in an adjacent industry and you're thinking about making a change, I think the what the IRA means for you is there's opportunity here and it's not a it's a pretty good place to be i personally have enjoyed my time in solar dave i don't i don't know about you i think what do you think uh, uh still here uh for the <laughs> folks who've been in the industry uh you'll know the uh reference to the solar uh the solar coaster our industry goes through uh a lot of ups and downs and changes uh some of them driven by policy some by technology some by just business model evolution uh, I've enjoyed each of those uh, rides up and down, and and here we are looking forward, and and we're seeing the the ride go up, and uh, just excited to continue to contribute. I think everybody just needs to remember that it's great to ride up, but on the but sometimes you're on the way down too, and 
sometimes it's best to just throw your hands in the air and enjoy the ride. David, thank you for your time on Power Players. You are indeed an expert in the industry and welcome on this show anytime and you are a true power player. Thank you. Mike, thanks for having us. Find summary thoughts on this topic and more insights into operating your clean energy assets at OrgisServices.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Players by Orgis, critical thinking to deliver the clean energy promise. <laughs>